Maybe that's a feeling of agitation caused by the presence or imminence of danger. Why do you think people believe in ghosts? Picture of Killaway's wife. What? Uh oh. Margaret! You son of a bitch! Jeez, I figured you had a sense of humor. After all. You married her! Ah! That's gotta hurt. Again. He tasks me. He tasks me, and I shall have him. I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. During the making of Basketball Monsters, many of you arrive at a questionable scene involving Rod Schneider. Now it's very possible that these scenes will disturb you. They may shock you. They might even horrify you. And although what will appear on the screen might seem to have placed the real actor in jeopardy, we would just like to stress that absolutely nobody saw injured or placed at risk during the making of this picture. I repeat, no babies were ever injured or placed at risk during the making of this picture. If any of you feel that you would not dare to subject your nose to such a strain, now is your chance to win. Well, we're going to Inasmuch as you insist on being an outsider and laughing at the rules and traditions of our advanced civilization, I am exiling you to a place which has no adherence to either. I have no choice but to sentence you.
for staying tuned through that interlude. I've been in that godforsaken desert for 40 days and 40 nights all to get away from Johnny and his pack of jackals. Where is she? What's up with Johnny? What's he waiting for? We've seen planet Earth for what it's worth But there's other planets to explore <laughs> Flying saucer! <laughs> Mickey O'Flynn, the man with the grin, is missing. Oh my god! I like his face. I want to tell the whole world that I'm alive. How do you think you came back? message for the people, and I'm in need of a medium. You'll always be an extra large to me, Mickey. Okay, Dave, that's it. Screw you and your college flunkies. I've had enough of this from you and from everyone else. I know what you guys are trying to do. Break me down, drive me out of the force. Well, it's going to take a hell of a lot more than a lame prank like this to get Curtis Mooney to throw in his badge, so fuck you. Over. Did you miss me? I guess not! And we are live. Welcome to Inside Movies Galore. This is episode number 34, and I am here in uh, the room. I have uh, director Paul Bunnell. Uh, welcome, Paul. Um, oh, who is Paul? Who is Paul Bunnell? I don't know about Paul Bunnell. <laughs> Actually, you know, you you pronounce my name Paul Bunnell if if you want to get okay. it right. Okay, sure, Paul Bunnell. <laughs> um, yeah, hey, there you go. That's bad. That's better. Paul Bunnell. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine. Do I just call uh, you by your name, Dave. Sure, you can call me. Uh, you can call me by my uh, my name. Uh, that's fine. Uh, we'll uh, we'll start with. Uh, how um how did you get involved with uh filmmaking and um uh where are you from uh locationally uh originally well originally i uh i was involved with the witness protection program and this was on uh in a remote part of russia <laughs> and this was a long time ago basically back in russia but they had they had a little thing where they bring people in and uh Put them into this uh, this witness protection program. Uh, it's very um, non communistic. I like that about Russia, you know. At the time, okay. now, of course, this was back in the nineteen forties. Okay. Did you want the real answer, or should I just keep going like this? I want the real answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm from a uh, a little uh, area in California. Okay called Burbank, Burbank, California, and I started making movies when I was a, when I was a boy, a young, a young person. Back in the day, film cameras instead of video cameras, and uh, that's true, you know, and, uh, you know, a, a roll of film back then was uh, several dollars, and then you'd, you'd only get about three minutes, three, three and a half minutes. Uh, on a roll of film, and I would make these short films, 
uh, on uh, Super 8. Okay. Back in Burbank, North Hollywood, the, the, the local valley. Uh, this area in California. So yeah, that's that's sort of what what got me into it, making movies as a kid with my friends, okay. and uh, enjoying that that okay. uh, um, thing. And yeah, you started uh, actually making films in the seventies, correct? Well, if you if you want to date me, and I don't mean in a literal sense, but yes. Uh, I did start making movies. Probably the first time I picked up a camera was around 1974. Nice. I got a actual uh, camera. It was a Super 8 silent uh, camera that didn't have batteries. You you wound it up <laughs> in it, a spring motor. So you you wound it up on the side, which was really cool. On my 11th birthday, my mom and dad gave me this camera. So I started uh, shooting some test footage. The very first roll of film I ever f shot was at Disneyland. I never, I've never said that to anybody before, but that's true. Okay. A, a film camera. Uh, and I shot a roll of film, was at Disneyland in 1974, and I still have that roll of film today. I didn't make a movie, you know, topic. I just shot home movie footage. Okay. And then I started getting a little more ambitious, and I put together a story and uh, started doing uh, movies with my friends. Okay. And then I got a sound camera. Probably for my birthday. And back then, I mean, I know now this seems like a sound camera. Now, wait a minute. Did you actually have color? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, why don't uh, we... Making, and then I did making. Okay. Progressed. I got better and better, you know, and a little more sophisticated. Okay. And then the film started getting into, you know, film festivals and... That sort of thing, and you know, one thing led to another, and here we are today. Alrighty. So, uh, why don't I ask you about uh, the first uh, uh, short film that I see listed here? Uh, 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 talk about your uh, uh, short film, The Visitant. How did you get involved? Yeah, The Visitant. Well, The Visitant was just another one of my movies that I was making at the time, and the difference is that particular film. Uh, was the first of my movies to get played on television. It was uh, shown on uh, subscription television okay. uh, as a short film. And it was called Rocky Three. Uh, I remember it was on late one night uh, on the on subscription television. It was called On. Okay. And the thing was uh, the big TV of the day. <laughs> and I submitted my, my short film, The Visitant, uh, and uh, I submitted it to On, and they they had no idea that this movie was shot super late. They assumed it was professional, and, uh, which it was not, but but the movie was shot on a very small budget. Uh, and it was the first of my films to have original music and all professional actors and 
really a fun, fun little short film. And one of my favorites to this day, I mean, you know, because it used to get played all the time. It was in uh, film festivals, the movie theater, uh, teen film festival with the, the one that J.J. Abrams, uh, you know, these were in this festival. And so I crossed paths with those guys. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the guys I crossed paths with through the visitant, Scott Dot went on to become half of the team who did uh, who wrote Ed Wood, The People versus Larry Flint, all kinds of huge movies like that. They did two Tim Burton movies. They also did, the, in addition to Ed Wood, they did Big Eyes, okay. and they recently did a Sarah J. Simpson thing. So anyway, you know, a lot of young people like Jay Abrams, Scott, of this festival. Okay. And it was at the, it was a small theater, put on a small theater in, uh, and you called the New Art, and a few different theaters. And Gerard Ville, he got young filmmakers' movies, and he exhibited them in theaters. And uh, it was really, really cool. Cool. And it uh, was uh, one of the star films back uh, of the day in that series, okay. and I, re I remember people really, really liking it a lot. Uh, can you tell us anything about, uh, about uh, the, the Visitant? A little bit of a summary, and uh, maybe... Well, the, visit, the Visitant is basically like a Twilight Zone episode, and a lot of my early short films were formatted, not formatted per se, but they were really in the style of Twilight Zone episodes. They, they had... Uh, Kind of like these these endings, you know, these these uh, hook endings, and okay. uh, the visitant is basically about a guy who goes to visit his starts off with a guy visiting his son's grave, okay, thing, and, and so he's standing by his grave, uh, the grave site, okay, it's a voice calling, and it's okay. a little boy's voice saying, "Daddy, daddy." <laughs> and then he turns around, and there's his son standing there. And he's like, well, Jimmy, you know, how can this be? And the boy says, you know, follow me. So he's chasing his son, his person that cannot see him and then he realizes that he cannot see him because he himself is dead okay. and his son you know and uh, the, the girl at his gravesite is his daughter and she's giving a monologue about you know daddy daddy why did you take the car and get drunk and kill little Jimmy, my only brother, your only son, that kind of thing. So, you know, it was really kind of fun, cool. And then the whole thing ends, cycle, where it, where, where it starts out, where it began. I mean, it ends where it began. And it goes in a cycle. It's a, it was a cool little movie that I made when I was 17 years old. <laughs> and uh, that movie is available to see okay. on, if, if you get this DVD that's now out of print, Payment put out my movie, That Little Monster, in the 90s. Actually, a movie I made in the 90s was put out in the early 2000s. One of the bonus features on that DVD is The Visitant. Okay.
Um, and uh, how about we talk about uh, the, your next short film from 1984, Obliteration? Well, Obliteration has been in the actual witness protection program for many years now, and <laughs> it's, it's, it's really a movie that nobody, not too many people have seen it. I made the movie with The Visitant because The Visitant highly popular short film uh, from a very young person, you know, that I was, and, and it showed a lot of total progress. I mean, if I'm looking at it now, in my 50s, thinking yeah. about a 17-year-old making this, this movie, that boy must have been at the age of 17 making a short film. So I, I tried to outdo myself with, it, with a movie that had more special effects, and uh, the problem was the story didn't quite, it had the Twilight Zone type ending, but the story didn't quite grab people as much as The Visitant. Okay. And not many of my movies send laugh. <laughs> it's funny. It's sweet. Shorter is sweeter, and it just gets to the point. But the obliteration, another movie that, uh, another short film I did, a little bit longer, a little bit more ambitious effects and great lighting and it's about a guy that basically is on one big, you know trip i mean it's not LSD per se but he it's a drugs and he starts seeing demons and creatures and they pull him into this other dimension and he's proud he can't get out but this was all very Skillfully by this that absolutely let him out of the way. It was uh, not not one of my favorites, but but technically a very excellent film. Okay. Considering I was about nineteen when I made that film. Okay. Very cool. Um, how about let's talk about your short film, Final Destination Unknown. Final Destination, and that's another one that, that was, uh, what, you know, I like to call The Visitant, Operation, and Final Destination Unknown, The Hell Trilogy. Okay. <laughs> uh, I call them The Hell Trilogy because the main character ends up in some kind of hell. <laughs> it's really quite funny. So <clears throat> I guess what I was doing with Obliteration and Final Destination Unknown was I was trying to recapture the magic of the visitant. Okay. And in doing so, I was a little more extravagant. The budget was higher. Okay. I was still shooting on, on Super 8, but I had a really excellent production values for a Super 8 film. Original music score. Really good actors. Uh, you know, and... Uh, Again, my films were always technically excellent in the sound and the cinematography. Uh, I've always had a little problem with my stories. Okay. Even up to uh, the Gaston of a Johnny X. You know, I mean, I've, you know, I, I've always had a little bit of a tr problem with my stories. Not to say that they're, they're bad, but, but that, you know, my stories are just a little different. Okay. And... Uh, but anyway, Final Destination Unknown, uh, I mentioned, uh, 
situation. One of my hell films uh, <laughs> where the character ends up in another dimension in a hell-like thing, setting, uh, scenario, and it, along with um, The Visitant and Obliteration, all three of those films were shown in different venues and film festivals. Uh, I know that The Visitant and I were both on very early anthology uh, VHS uh, releases in the 80s. Okay. Uh, there, there was a company, originally there was a company called Vidcrest, and Vidcrest released The Visitant on a VHS anthology that I see on eBay from time to time, and it's it goes, I tried to bid on it recently on eBay to try to get this uh, tape. <laughs> and it just went for a lot of money. I was totally outbid, you know. I mean, I'm like, wow, you know, people are buying old VHS tapes. I only wanted it because it has my uh, my monster from the visitant on the cover of the box. <laughs> so if if you ever see strange tales with this monster, this ghouly looking monster on the box, that's that's a shot from the visitant. And you know, I was very smart in those days, and I I still am, but. Even as a kid, I had a friend, and this friend took behind-the-scenes uh, photos of all, all of my movies on the film set and then publicity photos. So I had a vast array of images. Of course, in those days, we didn't have digital cameras. Mm -hmm. We had to take everything on 35-millimeter film, yeah. get it processed at the lab, and you know, you've got pictures and photographs. <laughs> but I have photo albums and negatives and stuff from all of my early films. Um, you know, so I was I'm really good about cataloging and uh, promoting <laughs> myself as a young person. And that, that, that was important, I think, you know. I think so. Too. That was very important. Too. And uh, I think that uh, it helped you uh, later, uh, later uh, especially in your uh, ghastly love of John, uh, Johnny X. Yeah, now I, I, I still don't understand how to be in film festivals and, and kind of like you know be in the in the in the likes with the likes of J.J. Abrams and Scott Alexander and and even Quentin Tarantino a little bit you know sort of cir similar circles. <laughs> Yet I'm the one guy that nobody's heard of. You know, yeah. I, I don't get it. I, it's sort of like I'm not blaming myself or maybe it's just the way fate is i i always wanted to as a very young person be a director and i always felt that i was destined to be a major director in a film uh, especially considering i started so young and that was my sole ambition and you know to this day it still is and i don't know if if i want to reflect on it honestly and say it's kind of sad you know to think that everything i've ever done I've had to fight tooth and nail to to get these movies made. Uh, I've never had studio backing or anything like that. But you know what, doggone it, I haven't given up. And even though I didn't become a Quentin Tarantino or a J.J. Abrams or a Scott Alexander, I mean, all those guys have won Academy Awards, you know, or whatever. But, you know, and their household names in the film industry. But for me... Nobody really knows who I am. I mean, I, I, a few people do in, in a small way. You know, I mean, I'm a, I've made some cult movies that people know me for. But, but honestly, you know, I mean, I just have always wanted to tell interesting stories, 
my kinds of stories, and I've always wanted to make movies that were, that were interesting and unique. And to this day, I'm still trying to do that. I've got another one that I've written, and, you know, I'm trying to get that one made to try to top Johnny X, you know, and make up for all the mistakes I made in that film. But it's, it's really hard, David, you know, it's, uh, you just got to keep, you got to hang in there through really, life's uh, problems and just do your best, really. It really is. And it, unfortunately, in, in this day and age, it, 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 it is a struggle, especially since, uh, you know, you, you, you have the struggle between the, the bigger industries and the smaller industries, and they've made it a hell of a, a, hell of a fight. <laughs> You know, it's funny, it's funny because there's actually, there's so much content now, and everybody can do it. When I was making movies as a kid, it was really specialized. I mean, you had to be really committed to want to make movies as a kid, as a young person, in the 70s and 80s, and even 90s a little bit. You had to really be committed. If you wanted to do it right, you had to shoot it on film, and there was no, you know, you didn't have phones or... These little cameras were not easy to get. I mean, if you got a video camera, they were very expensive, and the quality sucked, you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, back in those days, you had to try to make a, a, a home movie format look professional, or if you were, like, incredibly rich or had rich relatives, you could go out and get, you know, 16mm or 35mm and make your feature. Mm -hmm. A lot of people like Don Co that did that, that was able to break through, one guy, a friend of mine, uh, his name is Don Coscarelli. Okay. And Don Coscarelli made Phantasm, and uh, John Dies at the End, and movies like that, Bubba Hotep, I'm sure you've heard of those movies. Yes, sir. And, and he's a good friend of mine, and you know what Don did with Phantasm? His father had some money, I guess, and... Uh, Don was, gosh, he was, what was he, 19 years old or so when he was, he was very young, you know, and he was able to make a 35 millimeter feature. And I guess his dad knew some people over at Avco and Embassy and the distribution arm, or he was either involved, I don't know the full story, but anyway, yeah. he was able to get uh, his son's film, and Don had a, has an amazingly creative mind. And he's a very talented guy. But, okay. you know, he's a little bit older than I am. But, you know, he really, he, he comes from, I come from that same sort of young person's, you know, 1970s, trying to figure it out, make a movie, when not everybody could make movies. Yeah. And one of the first things that we realized that was available to us as it started cropping up in the 80s was VHS... What they were looking for, there were these little mom and dad pop, you know, in, you know they were the little labels that were looking for content. And that's how I got some of my short films on anthologies. And, you know, I, another friend of mine, Mark Pirro, did a movie called uh, Polish Vampire in Burbank. <laughs> and it was all, have you heard of Mark Pirro? I think I have. Um, Mark, Mark has kind of a rep for doing a reputation for doing these films. Polish Vampire in Burbank was the first Super 8 feature that got professionally distributed. Uh, I guess it got a, a big release. It, it was up on... Uh, 
he was on television on that Up All Night with Gilbert Godfrey. Remember that show? And I remember that show. <laughs> you do. You do remember that show? Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. But 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 anyway, I'm just saying that you know, in the '80s, we had all of these you know avenues that were open for us, and because we had all these films, that, and not everybody had their movies, so the really good ones were able to get distribution into these smaller VHS things and. Uh, you know, cable deals. That's how I got the visitant on uh, cable TV back in 1982. You know, I mean, I was thrilled. I was working at the Walt Disney Studios in the mailroom. And they called me up and they said, hey, we'd love to show your movie. We liked it. Um, we're going to lease it, you know, from you for a year. Here's a check for $500. And, and literally, that's what I got in 1982. $500, which was really the cost of making that movie that short film, to, and, and so they leased it from me, and it got played on television, and I was thrilled, you know, of course, that's, that's, that's pennies today, but, oh, yeah. but at the time, I was, you know, it's 18 years old or so, when that, when that 18, 19, by the time it got on TV, I was thrilled, really, I, I was thrilled, so anyway, in a way, we, uh, I digress a little bit, but, but today's markets, yeah, it seems like there's all of these, you know, things like Netflix, and, uh, you know, Amazon Prime and uh, all of these things, the theatrical markets sort of become exclusive to the studios and their tentpole movies for the most part. I mean, there's tons of other theatrical things, but those are the only things that make the big, big money these days that anybody really talks about because they're making billions of dollars, you know. <laughs> well, and... But, you know, but these the small films that we made back in the day, I mean, those were the types of movies, if, the, if you were any good... And if you can get your movie shot on 35 millimeter, you had a really good chance of, at getting distribution. And not only that, but then you had a really good chance of moving up and out and becoming somebody, you know. Um, and I, I never got into film school. I tried once. I applied for the American Film Institute, AFI. I didn't get in. And I had already made a ton of movies, short films, and I was surprised. And... Uh, they didn't take me, you know. <laughs> Let's. Uh, talk but anyway, I, I guess I'm just you know ruminating about all of these past defeats that I've had, all of these things I've done, figuring out how to have a film career, be a director. When I know so many directors, some of them have become friends. Some of them I I knew before they became directors. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and why didn't I? Why didn't I get it? Well. I didn't get it because I didn't get it, but the path that I took, the movies that I made, have gotten, have reached some people, and they're not great or anything, but I think that I have provided some entertainment to some folks, and I, I definitely know that my best is yet to come, because I haven't done this my entire life, only to have nothing come of it, you know, I, I, I'm just still out there, plugging away. I hear you on that. Um, in any case, uh, why don't we talk about that? And I know that you said that um, before that some of your films came to an anthology. But actually, it looks like there was an anthology that was listed on the Beaver called Terrifying Tales that you're um, part yeah. of the note got to. Um, right, yeah, Terrifying Tales was another one, and that, that, that one did feature... 
uh, Final Destination Unknown. And then there was there was one other one, and I can't remember what they called it. I know there was Strange Tales. Strange Tales was one. Terrifying Tales. And then there was a third one, and I can't remember <laughs> what, you know. Because The Visitant was used on two different VHS anthology releases. Okay. Um, Strange Tales was the one, and then the company that did Terrifying Tales did, uh, oh, 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 I know what it was called. It was called Final Destinations. Huh. They, they actually, it was weird because they actually kind of used my short film, but the funny thing is, is that in their Final Destinations anthology, they put The Visitant in that one, huh. and then they put Final Destination Unknown, my 1987 short film, in the other one, in the Terrifying Tales one. Okay, now it's all coming back to me. Geez, this this was a few years back, so I'm trying to remember everything here. That's cool. Um, so uh, next uh, is Cellar Doors, a short film from 1989. Yeah, Cellar Doors was a short film that I did, trying to break the mold of, <laughs> of my Hell uh, anthology. Um, but Cellar Doors, I met a fellow when I worked at Walt Disney Studios, and he... He's still alive. He's, he's a good friend of mine. His name is Pete Renaday. Okay. And he did a lot of... He worked for Disney Studios as the, as the script librarian. But uh, he was also in tons of Disney movies. He was an actor. And, he's, and he did voiceovers at all the Disney parks. So he was like the voice in the old Country Bear Jamboree show uh, of Henry the Bear. And that, that show still plays at Walt Disney World, I believe. Okay. No longer at Disneyland. Uh, he did tons of voices at the parks, lots of small little supporting roles in Disney movies in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And uh, so Pete had the script. He had a short story that he wanted to make. And I wanted to make a movie with Pete because I thought he was a really cool guy and I admired him. So uh, he uh, had a script called Cellar Doors. Okay. And uh, actually, it wasn't a script again. It was a short story, and I adapted it into a screenplay, expanded on it a little bit, and we, we shot it. Uh, usually, my, my Super 8 films back in those days took one to two years to, to make because I would shoot them on weekends here and there. Mm -hmm. We'd scrape some money together. We'd have a shoot. So mm -hmm. most of my films, you know, funny thing is, Pretty much all of my movies, including my professional 35mm feature, The Gas Above the Johnny X, were shot over a period of time uh, where there was a break, you know, and uh, we'd finish it. Uh, but anyway, so Cellar Doors was, was about a two-year project from beginning until premiere in 89. And uh, Pete was great. And that one, I would uh, say, was more like an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Okay. I did not really deal with the supernatural. It was a suspense, uh, kind of a suspense film. It was a 40-minute short film, okay. or short film, featurette, whatever you want to call it. And uh, it was good. You know, the acting in the movie was really, really good. And it dealt with the, uh, this guy, he was a meter reader, those guys that used to. I think they still have guys that go and check your meter. And Anyway, so he was having a, he got involved with, you know, the wife of... Uh, you know, that, uh, of a household that he was reading. And it, it's, you know, it, it was a, a nice little uh, kind of a suspense thriller thing. Okay. 
that's all I'll say about it. Again, another movie you won't really be able to see anywhere. What I, what I want to do is when I have this, this bigger release of either The Ghastly of Johnny X or my next film, I want to put all of these early short films, not all of them, but the good ones, like three or four of them, as bonus features on, on, a, on a Blu-ray release. So it would be oh. kind of fun for people to see my early work when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, so that, that's in the works. But all those movies have original scores, and they were all scored by a guy, uh, Jerry Danielson, who is still, I'm still friends with. I knew him when I was very young, and Jerry's still composing films. He did all my movies from 1981 through 1994. Okay. And then I got a different guy to compose Johnny X, but two guys actually. But uh, so yeah, those, those early scores are a lot of fun and the movies are pretty, pretty nifty, you know, looking at a young filmmaker's work. <laughs> so uh, uh, next is y uh, your uh, first feature, uh, I believe, uh, is That Little Monster from 1994. Yeah, yeah and, and, and calling it a feature <laughs> is really uh, not really fair, to be honest. It, it really wasn't a feature. It was... The movie itself is not even an hour long. It's 50... 56 minutes, I think. Okay. And uh, I call it a featurette. <laughs> but... The one thing that that movie had, or has, that none of the other movies before them, before it, has, is that it, it, it was shot on a higher film format. It was shot on 16 millimeter. Okay. And uh, all the other movies I made were uh, Super 8, which was, was, at the time, considered an amateur, but a lot of young filmmakers started that way, I mean, Steven Spielberg and uh, anybody that wanted to make movies was working on 8mm or Super 8, which came along a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But, so, the, uh, That Little Monster was a film that I was, originally wrote that short, that screenplay, because I was, at that time, trying to be a director, as I still am. And I wrote it for a TV show, and I submitted it to a show called Monsters. I don't know if you remember... 1985 Monsters? In, there was a show called Monsters back in the 80s, yeah. I own the complete set. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'll never forget going to the set of Monsters with my, with my short screenplay in hand and visiting when they were shooting an episode in Hollywood and uh, as a young, young filmmaker... And I had a connection that, you know, I used to make a lot of phone calls. Back in those days, we didn't have the internet, but I would get phone numbers of movie executives, and I would make calls and say, hey, you know, I'm a young filmmaker, I have this script. I, I even remember once calling George Romero. I don't know how I got his phone number, but I kid you not, I got his number and I called George Romero, and I'll be, I'll be doggone if he didn't answer the phone and take the time to talk to me. You know, he, he was a super guy. I mean, that was around the time when I was making Final Destination Unknown when I called G George Romero. That would have been in the, in the late, mid to late 80s. Probably the mid 80s. And anyway, so George Romero was very kind and he gave me advice and stuff. And I kept his number in my Rolodex all these years. I don't know. I don't. Uh, obviously, you can't reach George these days. But uh, 
Uh, but so to get back to the story, uh, so I, I called this producer of Tales from the Dark Side. I think his name was David Allen or Dave Allen. Okay. He likes, he was interested. He was like a British guy. Anyway, he liked what I had done and he was thinking of having, using me on the show Monsters that he was going to start producing. Okay. And so I was in the pipeline. But tragically, Dave Allen died. Oh. You know, I don't remember what happened, if he had a heart attack or what, but, you know, this was years and years ago. But So he died, and I took the script to the producer, Anthony Santa Croce. Okay. And he produced those, uh, the show Monsters. He was one of the producers. I, you might have seen his name on the credits. Yeah. And so I went over there to Hollywood, and... Showed him one of my, I even brought my film, Final Destination Unknown, and I played it for him in his office. I remember putting it in a VHS machine okay. and playing the tape for him so he could see my work. And uh, it was a nice little visit, and then I gave him the script, mm -hmm. and I waited to hear from them, and they basically said, well, no, that's a pass. We're, we're not interested. And I had specifically written that script for Monsters. And I was so bummed. I thought, wow, I was so close to getting my first real directing job, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I just said, well, what do I do in the, in the face of defeat? Well, I make the movie anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so what I did was I, instead of making it as a cheesy little episodic TV show, mm -hmm. I once again expanded it. And I decided to go artistic with it, something that monsters never would have let me do. I shot it on black and white plus X film stock on 16 millimeter. I think monsters might have been shot on 16 millimeter as well. I'm not sure. But, uh, but anyway, I, I shot my film on black and white. And then I did, at that time, I was kind of going through my David Lynch phase, you know. So I was really uh, into David Lynch stuff. So... You definitely, if you ever see that little monster, and it has been released by two companies, originally on VHS from a company called Sinister Cinema, mm -hmm. and then a company called Elite Entertainment specialized in horror films. They did a, a very nice DVD release of it, um, which is still on eBay. If you type in that little monster DVD, you'll see tons of them out there people are still selling them you know but anyway um so uh i did the movie and it was a little self-indulgent and it was really about uh you know it was it was a 30 minutes i wrote it as a 25 minute you know episode that i expanded into a 56 minute movie so again it's very kind of padded and it needs to be cut down a bit. But, you know, it's, it's very moody. It's, it's a mood piece. And I was really in my artistic mode. And we had a little, tech, uh, we had a little uh, steady cam that my friend built, and we used it in the film. And the lighting was really, really good. And the score by Jerry, who had done all my other short films, was really, really good. Okay. And one of, the, one of the cool things about that little monster was one of my childhood dreams came true with that film. And I got to work with Bob Hope. Nice. And I've been a huge fan of Bob Hope. When I was a kid in the 70s, I made short films about Bob Hope. And he knew about me. And um, 
finally, I said, you know, he's getting really old. I mean, am I ever going to get to work with Bob Hope? I mean, it seems like possibility. Well, I had collected memorabilia from Bob. I collected uh, thing, you know, costumes that he wore in some of his movies in the forties and fifties. And I and I brought them. I called on the phone and I said, "Would Mr. Hope do a cam?" And they said, "No, Mr. Hope doesn't do that anymore. He, you know, so, sorry." And I said, "Hmm, never one to be, uh, you know, discouraged." I took all of this uh, movie memorabilia that I had. Mm-hmm. And I wa- and I made an appointment to go see his daughter, Linda Hope, at the office in uh, North Hollywood, in Toluca Lake, I think it was. And I brought all of this into her office, and I set it down on the table, and I said, you know, I, I realize that you're, I heard that you're building a Bob Hope Museum, and you're looking for stuff. I said, I would love to donate to give you all of this stuff here. Mm-hmm. all of these costumes from some of Bob's movies. And they were like, wow, really? This, this is amazing. You're kidding. And I said, and, uh, and they knew that I was making a movie and that I wanted Bob to do a camera. And they said, and they said, well, what, what can we do for you? And I said, well, you know, it would just be so wonderful if Mr. Hope would do a few lines in my little movie that I'm making. And they said, I think we could work that out. So that is exactly how I got Bob Hope, the legendary Bob Hope, to do a very brief cameo in my film at over the end credits of that little monster you see him telling a few jokes and you know it was only a few jokes but you know what giving that memorabilia for me was worth having him in my movie and actually saying my name he says this is bob hope for that little monster and then he says regardless of what you heard it wasn't the paul Bennell story so you know it's just stuff like that it was so fun to have bob in my movie um but anyway, uh, that, that was a really fun movie, and that, that movie did for me was got me a little, it got me popular at some conventions, because uh, I put Reggie Bannister in the film, okay. and Reggie was in Phantasm, and you remember Forrest J. Ackerman, right? Correct. Creator of Famous Monsters of Filmland and all of that. Well, I got Forrest to do the opening. Originally, I was really ambitious, and I wanted Vincent Price, but of course, Vincent Price, you know, yeah, was he even alive? I think, no, I think Vincent Price had just died, Yeah, and I was asking Angus Scrim, that's it, I was asking Angus Scrim, the tall man, <laughs> and Angus wouldn't do it because he said, it, you know, it wasn't SAG, a Screen Actors Guild thing, and he couldn't do it, but he said, you know who you should call? You should call Flory Ackerman, he's the poor man's Vincent Price. <laughs> and I said, that's a great idea. So I did, and Forey did it, you know, and it was fun to have him do the opening of the movie, recreation of Edward Van Sloan's opening speech from Frankenstein. Uh, you know, the story you're about to see might thrill you. It may shock you. It may even horrify you, and so on and so forth. And then we put our little slant on it. Absolutely no babies were injured or placed at risk during the making of this picture. <laughs> And we shot it just like Edward Van Sloan in Frankenstein. We tried to copy the lighting. We put Forey in front of the same type of curtain. You know, it was so cool to have Forey Ackerman do that. So having Forey in it and having Reggie Bannister in it, who at the time I met him when he was doing Phantasm Two, having these guys in the movie got me a little recognition for that film. You know, if, if they hadn't been in the movie, mm-hmm. And the Bob Hope uncredited cameo. I wasn't allowed to, 
who advertised Bob Hope, but he was in it too. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if they hadn't been in that movie, that movie would have been kind of not, never released or nobody would have seen it. But because they had a few names, I was able to get little bookings at uh, conventions. I would go with Reggie and, you know, we were selling the tapes and I would sign things and, you know, it was really fun. And a lot of the old uh, horror magazines wrote up about it. I think uh, Famous Monsters uh, Filmland actually mentioned it once. And uh, a, a magazine called Cult Movies did a whole piece on it. But one of my favorite pieces was in a magazine called Monster Zine, which is no longer around. But who did I get to write this great piece on that little monster but Angus Grimm himself? Nice. And so I, I didn't get Angus in the movie, but I actually got him to do a nice piece on that little monster, and he gave it a glowing review and all of that sort of thing. And and I have this thing framed, and he signed it to me, you know, uh, which was cool. But uh, yeah, just just having having Angus do it. I don't know if you realize this, but uh, if you knew this, but but Angus Grimm, whose real name was uh, Rory Guy. Yeah. He used to do liner notes for Capitol Records, and he wrote the original liner notes for Meet the Beatles. Uh, and uh, he's a Grammy, Grammy award-winning liner note writer. I didn't even know you could get a Grammy for writing liner notes but uh, for records. But back in the day, he did that. And at the time, he, he was writing for more of the upper crust, the, the classical records and this kind of thing. And they said, should we put your name on it? Oh, can you help us with this Beatles thing, you know, for their first American release? And he's like, sure, I'll write the blurb, but don't put my name on it. <laughs> because it's rock and roll, you know. I don't want to be affiliated. I guess he was kind of regretful in later years, but it's true, though, that he actually wrote the liner notes on the Meet the Beatles record. So a little, uh, a little horror connection for you Beatles fans out there. Nice. The tall man wrote the liner notes. <laughs> Alrighty, so uh, now we'll uh, uh, get uh, uh, down to the main film that you are well known for, um, The Ghastly Love of Johnny X. How did you... Yeah, that's uh, what nobody's ever heard of. I don't know why you want to talk about that thing. Yeah. Well, if nobody's ever heard of it before, they will now. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, why don't you tell me how what would you, uh, came about? Yeah, no, I said, what would you like to know about it? Well, um, how did you, well, uh, first, how did you uh, come up with the uh, idea for it? Well, the Ghastly Love of Johnny X, originally, again, you know, going back to the beginning of this whole podcast where I was telling you how I wanted to be a director ever since I was a kid, and I've always been trying to find ways, you know, to talk to people, to, to get an opportunity for myself. And, you know, one thing after another, somebody would die or, <laughs> you know, like in the case of monsters or, uh, you know, just a lot of no's, a lot of doors slammed in my face. And, and, and uh, so with Johnny X, okay, I thought to myself, well, I did that little monster and that was shot on 16 millimeter and it was a short film, short-ish, you know, a feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, featurette. But nobody can really, you know, what can I really do with that film? I mean, not a lot. And I knew that I had to stop making short films. And I knew that I had to make a feature. And not just any feature, but a professional theatrical grade motion picture that could be shown in theaters 
mm-hmm. on what was at the time the current standard for, for showing movies, which was 35 millimeter film. <clears throat> you have to think about this now. When I started making The Gossy Love of Johnny X, digital was around in theatrical exhibition, but digital was barely scratching the surface. Oh, they had been talking about it for years, like, oh, in the future, there's going to be no more film in theaters. It's all going to be digital. And I, I never liked that, that. You know, that always sounded like a terrible thing to me, you know, and a lot of people. But, but, but you know, they had been predicting it 20 years before it had actually happened. And, you know, another year would pass and another year. And, well, the quality just wasn't good enough. But eventually digital did come around. And this is how we see our movies in the theaters today, right? It's all DCP. That stands for Digital Cinema Package. <laughs> and it is how the the standard is a 2K DCP. But I know I'm jumping around a little bit. So let me get back to the origins of Johnny X. I knew I had to make a, pi- a picture that was professional. And because I wasn't getting any opportunities from anybody, I had to create the opportunity for myself. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I'll do what I've always done. I will come up with a cool story. I'll come up with a feature-length story with different friends of mine, different writers, and we hammered away at this thing, and I finally came up with a concept that I liked. And there was a film producer who was a friend of mine. I used to get invited to his house. He would have these, like, dinner parties and things mm-hmm. back in, uh, gosh, the, the late 90s, probably. Okay. And he, his name is Bruce Cohen Curtis, and Bruce produced... Probably one of his best-known films that he produced was Dreamscape. Do you remember that movie in the I 80s? That movie that, uh, that had um, Quinn, the dude. Yeah, had... yeah. Uh, was... yeah. Well, anyway, yeah, Dreamscape. It had Dennis, Dennis Quaid, right? Quaid. There we, uh, there we go, Quaid. Yeah, Dennis Quaid. Anyway, he also did some low-budget films back in the day. He did another one called Roller Boogie that's kind of a cult film. (laughs) That has Linda Blair in it. Anyway, so Bruce, back in the late 90s, was still producing movies. And and I became friends with this guy. And I'm like, wow, you know, here's a chance to, (laughs) once again, hopefully, maybe he'll let me direct one of his projects, you know. And so I kept suggesting titles to him. And I said, well... How about Teenagers from Outer Space? They made it in the 50s, but what if I did like a reworking of it? And he stopped and he thought, hmm, Teenagers from Outer Space. That almost sounds commercial. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, hmm, okay. You know, because I had this idea about this 1950s gang of so-called teenagers. Okay. I mean, back in, you know, from outer space. Okay. In the 50s, the, the teenagers like in the blob were always 27 years old, you know. That was Steve McQueen in the blob. <laughs> but, uh, how, yeah, he ultimately passed on the idea of letting me direct it, and he just thought, well, no, that's not going to... Bruce was like, I think he was the nephew of Harry Cohen, who was the, the founder of Columbia Pictures. Anyway, uh... Bruce is still around. I just haven't seen him in many, many years. I'm sure he's long since retired. (laughs) Anyway, so I started writing this thing, and I told him, you know, another year would pass. 
And it's like, well, geez, I made that little monster in the 90s. It's almost the 2000s, you know, then it became the 2000s. And yes. I finally said to my friends, look, enough is enough. I've got the script pretty much where I want it. Let's just go out and start shooting some test shots for this film. I want to know what it's like to shoot 35 millimeter because 35 millimeter is the only way I'm going to get noticed in this industry mm -hmm. because that could play in a movie theater. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I got the, the camera one day. A friend of mine you know, got me the camera because he worked at the camera place. Mm -hmm. And uh, another friend of mine who did time lapse said, we're going to go out in the middle of the desert and we're going to shoot time lapse photography and... I want it to be like an Ansel Adams, uh, you know, painting or whatever, like a photograph, but a moving image. So we shot this desert stuff, and you see it in the beginning of the movie. And that was actually shot way back in 2002. Okay. And uh, it looked great. We had, 60, we had 60 seconds in the can, you know, footage. It's like, yeah, I'm making my feature. <laughs> well, anyway... Uh, another year passed, and I got the script better. And then I finally, my wife and I at the time, we decided, uh, well, let's make this movie. She was a costume costumer who wanted to be a designer, okay. and I was a filmmaker who wanted to be a director who was who had made a lot of movies, and I hadn't made one since that little monster. So we borrowed some money against our house. And we started shooting our film in 2004. I cast the movie. I got everybody together. And uh, the film was never originally written as a musical, but what happened was I, I wrote this. I decided to have one musical number in the movie that would be really like come out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't expect it, and it would be really long and elaborate. Okay. And that's the musical number that's in the diner scene. Okay. And we love that so much. And really, that's too long of a music. I look at it now, and that should be highly trimmed. <laughs> it doesn't quite fit. People are going, oh, is this? You know, Moulin Rouge or what? You know, I'm mean, a <laughs> big fan of musicals, I'll be honest with you. I, I really am not. Some, yeah. some musicals I love, like West Side Story. But on average, I'll tell you, current musicals, I just can't get into them. You know, I, I went and saw this, uh, The Greatest Showman. I, I couldn't stand that movie. And... <laughs> You know, I mean, they're always about topics that I love, but then they ruin it and they try to make it like Chicago. You know, I hated Chicago. So, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm guilty of making the kind of movie that I despise. I don't know. But uh, so I wasn't trying to make that kind of movie. I was trying to make the musical numbers more like West Side Story, more like Broadway showy, not like contemporary musical numbers that they put into movies today like The Greatest Showman, but... Trying to be the old-fashioned 1960s, you know, Broadway-style musical numbers, you know, in film. Anyway, I don't know if I accomplished that, but that's what I was going so, for. How did you go about so, your casting? With the casting? Yeah. Well, I knew I needed... I remember what happened with uh, that little monster, that I got a little bit of uh, exposure for putting... For only putting, you know, two people in there that were not like huge names or anything, but I had Reggie Bannister and all the Phantasm fans and Flory Ackerman. And I thought, well, that opened some doors and got me some publicity, so why don't I try to find some more of those kind of people and get them in the movie? Yeah. And when I put these kind of people in my movie, I don't do stunt casting. I do 
real casting. I want to give these guys great roles that they can do that make them shine. You know, I'm not interested in a little cameo where they, you know, where Jack Benny, you know, drives up in his in his car and he goes, well, you know, he drives off like in Mad, 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 Mad World, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite movies, by the way. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? I want to give them good roles. So I, uh, I used to frequent these film uh, festivals and things, and uh, I met Kevin McCarthy, for starters, okay. over in uh, Hollywood at uh, the Cinecon Film Festival. Okay. And Kevin, of course, legendarily known for being in Invasion of the Body Snatchers and, you know, a hundred other movies of general interest. I mean, he was great. And at that time, he was pretty old. Mm-hmm. And I said, Mr. McCarthy, uh, are you still uh, working? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I've, I've, I have a movie I'm doing. I would, you know, and it's, uh, and we're going to do it with the Screen Actors Guild. See, that's, a mis- that's something I knew I had to fix. With that little monster, that's why Ace Grimm turned me down. If I had been working with SAG, I could have gotten Angus Grimm and that little monster. So I was on board with SAG, okay? So I knew that I could get any actor now. I can get any celebrity or anybody I wanted that would say yes. So I got Kevin McCarthy. At first he was interested, and then he said no. Then he said yes, then he said no. Then he finally said yes again. Why did you say yes? And he goes, well, I didn't want to disappoint your wife. <laughs> he, kept making, he kept making excuses like, well, I'm doing a movie with uh, Anthony Hopkins, which he was, a, a picture called Slipstream that Anthony Hopkins directed. But, but you know, um, eventually, you know, I, I got to know Kevin and I met with him and he became comfortable with me and he said yes. And he took a chance, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so we got Kevin on board. And then, of course, I called Reggie Bannister, who I'd become friends with through the conventions, for that little monster. And Reggie was lo- loved the script. Originally, I asked him if he would play the rock and roll guy, and he goes, well, man, you know, I, I kind of like these, uh, the show promoter, dude. You know, he's, uh, he's really interesting. And I said, you got it, man. You'd be great. I'd love to have you do it. <laughs> the role of King Clayton. The, the, and you know what? He was really good, and I have to say, I think it's one of the best roles Reggie Bannister, certainly in his later career. I think it's one of the best acting jobs he's ever done in a movie and one of the best roles he's ever had outside of Phantasm and all of that stuff. <laughs> he's other movies he's done and he's had relatively small, smaller parts. But Johnny X is a really good role for him and it's in glorious 35 millimeter anamorphic <laughs> black and white. Reggie's great. So anyway, so I got Kevin, I got Reggie. Um, I started, I needed a Johnny X, and a friend of mine said, why don't you look at this guy, Will Keenan? I said, who's that? Well, Will Keenan was in a movie called Tromeo and Juliet. Well, I had heard of that movie, but I would never seen it. And I knew in my mind I wanted a guy with dark hair, like black hair, it was pale, that had some tattoos. This is, I didn't know who I was going to get, this is who I pictured in my head, how Johnny X would look. And I looked at some of Tromeo and Juliet, and I'm like, oh, boy, this is, uh, that's different, you know. But I, this friend of mine knew Will Keenan, so he got me hooked up with him. So I met with Will Keenan, and we talked about the movie. Man, this guy looks like this guy could be the character, you know. And he had a little cult following, and I thought, well, that's good. He's got a cult following with his Tromeo thing and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But, uh... 
he didn't want to smoke in the movie. Uh, the, the character of Johnny X originally smoked a lot, like they would in the 50s. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is that Will Keenan in real life smokes. Or he did then. I don't know, he probably still does. But anyway, so he smoked cigarettes. You got to pay me extra if you want me to smoke on screen because I really don't want to do it. I said, well, why? He said, well, because I don't want to put that negative thing out there for kids. Okay. You know, he said that he'd wish that he hadn't started and all of that. And I said, okay, fair enough. So why don't we, and I was too cheap to pay him the extra money to smoke. So we just gave him uh, black licorice sticks. <laughs> and that was his thing in the movie, you know. So whenever he picks up a licorice stick a couple of times, that's because we didn't want, he didn't want to be smoking a cigarette. So now I got Will Keenan in the movie. And we start shooting with those three basic names okay. back in 2004. Okay, and we shot uh, for seven days in 2004 with all those people. Mm -hmm. And then we ran out of money. <laughs> um, my wife and I were like, wow, you know, where did the money go? You know, we've already spent $60,000 here and then another 30000 And, you know, it's just adding up. And I'm like, I thought we could make this whole movie for like three hundred grand or even a hundred grand. I didn't think it was going to come to this. And we were finally shooting, you know, we, we shot uh, all together about 10 days, uh, 10 or, or 10 or 12 days in uh, 2004, uh, spread out over a few months. One of them was all clumped together in June from all the diner stuff. And then another day was Kevin McCarthy and another, another two days. And then another two days was at the drive-in. Now, when we got to the drive-in at the end of the year, out of money and we had all of this you know planned out it was way far away from where we were based and i had to put everybody up in a hotel and the first day was beautiful sunny day and then the second day it started to snow and i'm like you've got to be kidding me <laughs> you know the rains came in and we couldn't match anything from what we had shot the day before and uh we had to stop basically i had to stop and that's where the movie stopped until six years later when what did we do well, the very first thing we went back and picked up exactly where we left off back at the same drive-in <laughs> six years later and the cast was back and deanna as bliss and Les as chip they look the same there's a scene in the movie where they're sitting in the car talking that was shot in 2004 and they get out of the car and they're walking and that is 2010, six years later. And you would never, ever know that, that there's a six-year jump in time on that single cut there. Isn't that amazing? I don't know. The, the actors look great. Either the black and white helped or something. But <laughs> I happened in that six-year gap was I was trying to get the money to finish the movie. <laughs> and the actors had lost faith in me. Everybody had lost faith in me. They were all saying, Paul... You know, make a, make a teaser, out, make a trailer out of it. I said, I'm not making a trailer, I'm making a movie. Color, use the black and white footage. <clears throat> Release it on digital. I'm like, absolutely not. I, you know, everybody was throwing out ideas for how I thought I could salvage this thing. And I just said, no, it's got to be finished the way it was started, you know. And I was about, even I was about ready to give up six years later. When a friend of mine came along and said, Paul, I just came into a bunch of money. Uh, 
I would like to help you finish your movie. And I'm like, you got to be kidding. Really? And he gave me, I knew it was real when he gave me a check. And he handed me his check for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I knew, boy, we're going to do this thing. Oh, my goodness. And I was excited to get the check, but I was really kind of like, oh, geez, now I've got to do the work. You know, this really is going to happen, you know. So I started calling everybody back. And they thought, no, 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 Paul, come on. This isn't really happening, is it? And I was like, no, this time we got the check. We had some false, you know, starts during the, that six years. We had one guy that swore he was going to invest. And then he ended up going to prison for lying to a grand jury. He was conning me. And I'll tell you, Dave, you know, all, all of the trials and tribulations of trying to get the money to finish the movie and me just hanging in there and never giving up. That's the real story of Johnny X. Not the movie, which came out okay, I guess. There's, you know, always issues with things. But, I mean, people seem to like it. But the real story about this movie is how difficult it was to get it made and to get it finished and everything, all the obstacles that were thrown in our path during the years of trying to put this film together. Now, that is not a way to make a movie, <laughs> but we made it. And, you know, when we were working, we were on a schedule. You know, I wasn't just here and there. We were on a very strict, you know, tight schedule. I couldn't always get everything I wanted to get, but I was very well prepared and I had backup plans. And, you know, surprisingly, I think the entire movie years in 2002 and four and 2010, when we finished mm -hmm. shooting, I think there were a little over 30 days of shooting altogether, maybe days or not quite 35, anyway, somewhere in that ballpark. And, um, you know, that's a movie that could have been shot, obviously, in a month. <laughs> and I had all of the money when it was. So I guess I kind of went into it just blindly, like jumping off a cliff and hoping that before I hit the bottom, I was going to invent, a, you know, be able to stitch together a parachute. It's just one of those things where I just blindly went in and said, I'm going to make this movie. And I, and I started making a movie, you know, and uh, before you know it, uh, we ran out of money and then we had to stop and start. Anyhow, that's the story of the ghastly love of Johnny X. Okay. And to my thrill, you know, of course, if I had gone back now, I have a, a, an edited version that I trimmed about 15 minutes out just for myself. Okay. They played it in Australia on Australia television, but... That's the only country that's ever seen the edited version. And, you know, some of the big fans of Johnny X don't like the stuff that they cut out, but it certainly helped the movie <clears throat> move a, a, along a little bit better. But that's not to say it needs, you know, necessarily... Every movie could be trimmed down. But, uh, yeah. but you know, so here I had a 35-millimeter feature that I started making when 35 was the way to go. And by the time I finished the doggone thing... The films, the very film stock that I was shooting on had become discontinued. Oh. I got the very last of it just in the nick of time. And if it had taken any longer, I would not have gotten that same film stock. <laughs> I would have had to shoot it on a different stock. And, um, and all the theaters were playing digital by that point, you know, in 2010, uh, you know, 2011 and 12. I was doing about a year of post-production, music scoring and special effects. And sound, that took about a year. 
And then we got the movie ready, and I had a 35-millimeter print in my hand, and I said, here it is. And the first people to see it, I took it to uh, Fox Searchlight, and I, and I sent a 35-millimeter print over to Fox Searchlight. I thought, well, this is great. You know, I've got the, the president of Fox Searchlight looking at my movie. Well, they, well, they passed on it, of course. And I never got the big distribution that I was hoping for the film. But eventually, a little company called Strand Releasing picked it up for all the, the, the North American, you know, DVD. And they never put a Blu-ray out, which I'm, you know, disappointed in. But that just makes uh, people's appetites a little more wet because eventually we're going to do that Blu-ray. And I've been working with, so, you know, I've been talking to people. Like, there's a company called Arrow Video in the UK. Yeah, I, I, and, uh, I actually helped out the Arrow Video a little bit when they were kickstarting their Mythica. So uh, when they were starting what? When they were kickstarting Mythica, I, I put some oh. money there, uh, towards their campaigns uh, when they were doing the because uh, 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 Kevin Zorbo was actually uh, looking for funds on Kickstarter. Uh, oh, fantastic! Twenty bucks here and there to get, uh, pick up some of the films. Well, Arrow Video is a, is a company that I've been. Um, entertaining, you know, that I've been basically, uh, what, what do you call it, sort of smoozing with. Okay. And uh, there's a guy over there that's that's hasn't looked at the film yet, but they're highly interested. And you never know. It can go either way. It can be yes or it can be no. Yeah. But I'm trying to make this deal with Arrow and hope, hopefully keep my fingers crossed. I might jinx it by, by speaking about it publicly, but whatever it is, it is. Uh, but uh, that would be, uh, if that does come to pass... We would have a, a Blu-ray, a UK international release, and a Blu-ray release, as long as they, a deal with Strand Releasing that still has the digital rights here in America, okay. in North America. So anyway, so we're hoping for that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny because the movie, I, I, uh, when I did the deal with Strand Releasing, I held on to my theatrical rights. Because they didn't really want to do anything with it. And I thought, well, can I have the theatrical? And I said, sure, you hold on to those. So I've been able to book it, you know, during Halloween and mm -hmm. different times of the year. And there was a college recently that uh, had me come down to the University of Southern Indiana, invited me to come down and speak about the film to their film class. Okay. And we, we played it. Normally we play it on a BCP. But occasionally it gets screened on 35 millimeter, which is why I have those beautiful prints. <laughs> which uh, one copy resides at the Library, Library of Congress, and one copy, not one copy, but the, the, the masters, the, the negatives, reside at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Nice. My movie is protected in a sense that if something were to happen to me, well, the movie is, is preserved there. You know, I mean, it's in the system so that, you know, they can discover it years from now and go, what is this weird little independent film from the 2010s? And this is interesting, you know. <laughs> so, somebody made this movie on film, and it was an independent movie. So anyhow, uh, but so many great news stories have come out, you know, just by fluke. We were the lowest grossing film of 2012. So somebody started publicizing that, and one thing led to another. And CBS Sunday Morning did a whole big story about me the next year. Okay. And they aired it during their Oscar show on okay. Oscar Sunday. And uh, so that was great. Bill Geist did this, this show with me. They came from New York uh, to interview me here in Hollywood. And it was really, really great. And uh, I've done a lot of uh, things, you know, live TV show appearances. And 
in NBC Nightly News did a story about it being the last movie shot on plastics, and uh, we've been featured in newspapers and magazines and the American Cinematographer magazine. So anyway, I've been very thrilled by the ongoing publicity, and it seems to have been woven into people's minds. But the one thing that we need is we need a uh, cable, cable release. You know, it needs to be shown on TV. Now, once it's shown on TV, it was on Netflix, you know, for one year. Huh. And when it, when it was on Netflix, it got a lot of people, it was on a lot of people's radar, and they were able to see it. Okay. And that really helped a lot. But, you know, Netflix took it off after a year. So I'm hoping for, my goals are this. For this movie, I, want, I would love for it to get a release, of course, overseas in the UK and on Blu-ray. And ultimately, the Criterion Collection. Now, you know, if you're going to reach for something or shoot for the moon, right? Yeah. I think this is a movie, the Criterion Collection, would really do some really great stuff with. Because if you see this movie in HD, the cinematography, with all the film's shortcomings, you know, I mean, it's not a perfect movie. Like I said, nothing is. But the cinematography truly is gorgeous and needs to be seen in HD. Yeah. And because it's the last film shot on Plus X film stock, which was basically a black and white negative that Kodak manufactured that was a very fine grain, and uh, it had a, uh, a low ASA. In other words, you needed a lot of light. And we were using scope lenses, anamorphic lenses, so we really needed to make sure the lighting was good. And it came out beautifully. You know, I had all the lighting we needed, and, oh, boy, that set was so hot from all the lights. Because you really need a lot to get the exposure, you know, to, to make the exposure right. Okay. Now, they still manufacture uh, uh, a grainier stock. I think the Kodak still puts out the, the, the Tri-X, or what they call double X, in 35 millimeter. But it's grainy. It's not as good looking as the Plus X, so. Well, uh, that's the story of the Gossip of the Johnny X, David. I mean, it's available if anybody wants to see it right now. Okay. You can get it on DVD. Amazon, of course, sells it. Um, is it streaming? It, we have a beautiful... It, it is streaming. Uh, Amazon, you can get it through Amazon. You can stream it on iTunes. You could stream it on a platform called Voodoo. Do you know Voodoo? Yeah, I know of Voodoo. Uh, yeah, it's on that one. Okay. Um, you could stream it. Those are the main ones I know of. I think, you know, uh, YouTube has it. Um, not, not for free, but, you know, you could buy it and then stream it through there. And you can see the movie on HD if you get it through Vudu or Amazon. I think you can actually buy it, download an HD copy. Okay. Um, I always see it on eBay. If you just type in the Gassy Love of Johnny X, there's always somebody selling the DVDs. Or, uh, what else? Uh, maybe you could see it at a theater near you. If, if anybody out there in their hometown has an art house theater that shows random reissues and that kind of thing, let me know because I'll try to bring it there. I did, I did four different states. This uh, Last year, we took it to a theater in Washington, Vancouver, Washington. Uh, it showed at the University of Southern Indiana in Evansville. It showed in Howell, Michigan, and it played in Barberton, Ohio. 
at a theater. So those are all bookings that the theaters that requested the movie. Okay. And a, a, a few of those I actually went to. I, I often will bring DVDs to sell if people want it, and I'll sign them. And uh, we even have a limited edition soundtrack CD that Critcherland uh, put out. Oh. And so I still have a few of those. Anyway, there's always stuff out there for the movie and ways to see it. Awesome. Or, you know, just call me. I've got a copy. So. <laughs> um, well, um, I thank you for coming on. Um, there, uh, there were actually a few suggestions that I was going to uh, uh, tell you about. Remember that podcast with uh, a few young ladies who uh, work with Death Bar's Dark uh, Coughing Classics from Kenosha. Um, and... Um, uh, Celeste Parker, she work, uh, works with Dedgar uh, on the show. Well, I, I I told her about you, and I, I will have her contact you. They have some local channel um, um, variety thing that they can maybe see if you'd like to be interested in being on some kind of thing. The one thing for that, you mean Johnny X being on their channel? Correct. Uh, well, the problem, the only problem with that is that the rights for any digital broadcasting of any kind are owned by Strand Releasing. So I couldn't really okay. do that. Do that. Although you know, Battle Monster is available if they want something like that. Okay. But uh, we can run clips of Johnny X and talk about it and promote it or whatever. Um, but um, until the you know their their distribution rights expire. My hands are tied there. But if they if they wanted to organize like a a public screening somewhere, which I'm I guess they don't do that. But if they did, of course that is all owned by me, and I control all of the theatrical. And have to go through Strand. Strand will charge money, you know, so they they will charge uh, money. What they have a they have a saying, you know, you have to pay to play. So. Okay. So, but uh, no, but that's you know just because I made the movie doesn't mean that I own all the rights. But I own the movie. But you know these theatrical these uh, digital rights are yeah all tied up right now by a distributor. So okay, well um I'll just tell you about a few other um, options that you go go down the road possibly. Um, yeah, that would be fantastic. Um, there's uh, a guy who puts together like a really nice VHS type. Or deal that um, does stuff in the UK, and um, that um, he, he does his own artwork and uh, whatnot. I mean, if if anything down the road that you uh, 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 that you want, if he likes it, what he does is uh, he uh, gets uh, you make money from it, and. Uh, he makes like fifty of these uh, things. He uh, does underground gore oh. lecture. He, he puts them in this like cool VHS thing, and he's so that's cool. So it's like a retro. So he yeah. releases these movies on a retro format. Correct. Correct. And people are buying them. Hey, no, that that's that's fantastic. Because even though that's not really how I would like my UK premiere to be, I could certainly authorize a limited edition. Uh, all of the foreign rights for the movie are 100% available right now. If, uh, if anybody out there in any other territory, Australia, where would like to make a movie release, it is here. It is available. 
just uh, contact my people, <laughs> whoever they are. I, I can hook you up with this guy. The, the other thing I was going to tell you about is uh, 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 there's a guy out there uh, there who does stuff on Roku, and I know you ha have nothing to do with the digital rights here in America, but, uh, but uh, he's kind of getting uh, somewhat well-known. Uh, well he's actually the guy behind uh, the uh, Dahmer, uh, uh, <laughs> the Dahmer uh, comic book uh, from back in the day, uh, unfortunately. But... Um, uh, he runs American Horrors, uh, um, which is a rookie. I, I, I figure, um, um, Celeste, once she gets in contact with you, um, she can tell you a little bit more about that. So, yeah, yeah, well, that's fantastic. I, I appreciate all of your, uh, anything, all the help here and all of the advice and all the contacts, you know, and uh, if there's anything I could do for you, um, yeah, I'd be happy to do it. Most definitely. Well, uh, thank you for coming on and uh, talking with me. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for uh, you being able to do, uh, do this, and uh, thankful to our digital technology these days. So yeah, absolutely. So, so you've seen the movie, of course. You've reviewed it and everything on your on your website, Movies Galore. I re I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, I I uh, I reviewed it uh, probably about a year ago, and uh, I I happened to. Um, um, I, uh, see, I've been writing reviews for the last three years now. Um, right. uh, mm -hmm. um, I started out as a very small Stephen King movie cl uh, club and I, uh, then I branched out to more movies and, uh, uh, and I started getting to know, um, more independent filmmakers and whatnot. And then, uh, over time I've become a producer of my own, um, making uh like uh right now uh the biggest thing that i helped pro uh, pro uh, produce will be coming out in 2018 it's called russell massacre with uh brad twig um wow. he helped me get some of my dvd collections uh, uh, for really cheap so i i decided to uh, return the favor and uh, help him out on his uh, his film he was struggling for a little bit so it's fantastic <laughs> But um, other than that, uh, I'm right now uh, uh, working with a short filmmaker um, from South Carolina, myself, and uh, we don't know what project he's making, but he's, he assures me that, uh, that it's going to be a good one, and I, I, all I really want to do was kickstart his career, and he's very young. But he did a short film called Aeternus, and you might actually like it. So, I'd love to see it. It's on black and white. You can find it on YouTube. Oh, um, fantastic. Send me a link to that, won't you? Yeah, I, I will definitely. And uh, I liked it so much that I wanted to kickstart his career. So um, That's and, fantastic. Thank you for doing that. Uh, so um, that's kind of, kind of what I've been uh, doing. And I watch movies from time to time and write, uh, write them up. So I thank you for coming on. Um, and hopefully... Um, Hopefully, um, you can make uh, your film that, uh, that you uh, that you want to make. Uh, yes, I, I do have a, a movie that I have just finally, after five years of trying to do it, get it right. I finally completed the screenplay for a, a movie called Rocket Girl. Okay, and I am really excited about this project. It's it's you know it's got my stamp on it, but it's very interesting. It's fun. It's it's got retro 
stuff in there. It's the 1960s and present day stuff. But it is just a fantastic little adventure film. Uh, really, more of a relationship thing. Okay. Couple, but but it's uh, something that I'm I'm dying to get made. So awesome. Well, uh, it will happen if I can get the Gassy Love of Johnny X made. <laughs> I can get Rocket Girl made. I'm I'm pretty confident. Well, I'm pretty confident in you too, sir. I think you have uh, have a lot more in store, uh, store for um, the public to see uh, of the things that you want to portray onto um, your film. So uh, I appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully you have a good uh, good evening, and uh, uh, hopefully you enjoyed your time here on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, David. I appreciate it. Most definitely. Happy New Year to you and everybody listening. You too. Oh boy. Hi. I'm Larry. This is my brother Daryl. That's my other brother Daryl.